Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, so we can make sure we're ready to study the word that we are in fellowship, and then um, after silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We're thankful for your grace, your goodness to us. We're thankful that uh, you have provided us with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. We're thankful that... At this time of year, there is a focus on him and our prayers that people will uh, be interested in just finding out what it is about Jesus that is so special. Father, we pray for those in this congregation that are traveling. There are many who are on the road now, many who are, who are preparing to be gone for the next few days. We pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe. And Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that uh, we would be challenged by the uh, message that we have from the Apostle Paul and that you would uh, strengthen us spiritually in terms of the message of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. As I looked at these passages after coming out of the uh, introduction of the first two or three verses, we see really in this section from the first 15 verses in terms of Paul's uh, introduction, and that's what verses 1 through 5, we would call that the introduction. The first seven verses would be the address and the prelude. And what we see expressed here is not only some of the key ideas that Paul is going to reinforce and expand as he goes through this epistle, but also we see something of his priorities in terms of his own uh, apostolic, uh, apostolic ministry. Now, the trouble with priorities is that too often we let all of the little things that uh, come up every day in terms of immediate demands uh, interfere with our priorities. And priorities are those things that people think about this time of year because you have New Year's coming up next year, and we all have a habit of trying to uh, some year, uh, sometime, come up with some resolutions that we're actually going to keep. I just think we need to lower the bar so everybody will be happy and quit the nonsense with resolutions. But uh, everybody tries to think about that. One of these is just how you handle priorities in life. Priorities are designed for us to establish what our scale of values are in terms of work, family, in terms of our involvement in the local church, and then we're, we live on the basis of those priorities. problem that everybody commonly experiences is that we live in an era when there, everything's rushed, you know, we can't imagine what it must have been like 
a hundred years ago and before that. And just think that from uh, the time of the creation up until the early 1800s, nothing ever moved any faster than a horse. And communication never moved any faster than a human being could travel. And so life proceeded at a really calm pace, and nobody expected an instant response to a letter. People would send letters, and it would take three months for the recipient to get it, another three months to get a response. So nobody was in a, in a hurry. Yet today we send an instant message, and we expect a reply within 30 or 45 seconds. And if we don't, we start getting a little impatient. We send out emails or uh, we get on the t- telephone, we carry cell phones with us everywhere so that uh, everybody can get a hold of us on a moment's notice for the most inconsequential conversation. But it just puts that time pressure on us so that the immediate, urgent things crowd out priorities. And the priorities are the things that at the end of the week we say, I really wish I'd gotten A, B, and C done, but instead all these other things got done except for the things that we really wanted or needed uh, to get done. And so often that, and all that does is just build up a lot of anxiety and a lot of, uh, a lot of tension. Well, in the Christian life, there are also priorities, and those priorities we have to pay attention to in terms of spiritual growth, and we see the uh, indication of what some of these priorities are in this opening uh, introduction to the epistle to the Romans. So just... Briefly, by way of review, uh, in the in the opening seven verses, we have the address and salutation and prelude. The salutation is actually includes the author Paul and the recipients, those who are in Rome in verse seven. But in between verse one and verse seven, unlike most of Paul's uh, introductions and salutations, there's a lot of other. Uh, information. He identifies himself, as we said in verse 1, as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ called an apostle. Now, what you see there in that first verse, because it's also uh, indicated in verse 6 and again in verse 7 in so, some translations, you have the word called, which can be either a verb or a noun. Uh, as a noun, it means to be identi- to, as something that's identified as a verb or verbal form, it's the act of calling or inviting, and often uh, the it's a uh, a phrase that comes into English in an awkward sense. So you have a tendency of uh, translators to insert uh, something along the order of the phrase "to be," as you do in verse one, called "to be an impossible an, an apostle." But see, as soon as you insert the phrase "to be." You've changed the meaning of the verse. Was Paul called to be an apostle or was he called an apostle? Not just as a, as a label, but that that indicates that, that Jesus Christ identified him as an apostle from the very beginning. And then when you get down into verse 6 and verse 7 again, we have the same thing as we'll see when we get there this evening. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Whereas the original Greek just says called or identified in this sense as saints. And so by inserting that uh, little phrase that it's in italics in your English, though for some people that clears up the meaning, 
uh, it actually can create a little confusion at different times, and you have other uh, insertions in verse 4, so you just need to be aware of that. So Paul's identified as a slave because he recognizes he is in an authority relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he identifies in other epistles as the head of the church. And as such, he is under his authority, and he's called an apostle, and that's further defined as being uh, separated uh, to the gospel. And so that fo- that's the focus of his life and, he, and ministry. But once he introduced the phrase, the gospel of God, then in verses 2 through 4, we have this appositional, uh, or several appositional phrases which expand the meaning of the word gospel. And the focal point of the gospel has to do with Old Testament promises that are given again and again. We've studied this last time on on Thursday night, I went through a series of different promises, prophecies uh, in the Old Testament related to the fact that the Messiah would be from the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, the tribe of uh, Judah, uh, Genesis 49.10, from descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7, uh, 7 through 14, uh, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, uh, Isaiah 9.6, as well as he would be called uh, Mighty God, uh, Eternal Father, uh, Prince of Peace, all these various titles would be applied to him, indicating the Messiah would be both God and man. So we have this series of pro- prophecies in the Old Testament that all focus on the fact that there's two aspects to the person that the Old Testament looked to as the royal Davidic king who would bring in a perfect kingdom for Israel and that the Glory of the nation of Israel would be in the future something greater than anything ever experienced under either King David or King Solomon on the, in the uh, first temple period. So we have uh, the fact that the, this Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be born of the seed of David, a descendant of David, and according to the flesh, that is with reference to his humanity, and declared or identified as the Son of God. This doesn't mean that this is when he becomes the Son of God, for Jesus always was the Son of God, the triune God. Um, This is also evidenced in numerous passages in the Old Testament reference or give indication of a plurality in the Godhead. Uh, Plurals like Elohim, And also you have places where Yahweh is speaking and he talks about sending his servant uh, who will speak by means of his spirit, where you have the spirit, the divine servant, mentioned in a statement by uh, Yahweh, which shows a multiplicity of personality, very clear even in the Old Testament. So then we get down to the next statement that that Paul begins in verse 5. Actually, in, in the English, there's a, a, a sentence break here, but that sentence break does not occur in the original. But it does indicate that he uh, advances what he is saying here. And so to pick up the context, Paul says in verse 4 that uh, the Son of David was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, that's the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, so now he is developing 
moving his, his uh, statement forward, that it is through him, that is through this one, who is identified as the descendant of David, according to the flesh, and is also identified as deity, the phrase son of God, in, in, is a Hebraism, it's an idiom in Hebrew indicating uh, a, a character, an attribute, or a quality of somebody. So that in Hebrew you have phrases like, they don't get translated this way into English. You'll read the English text and it'll talk about a murderer or a fool, but in the Hebrew it will say a son of a fool or a son of a murderer. And so this was an idiom for expressing that this this main noun uh, a murderer, a fool, something else, that this is being applied, that's the characteristic that's being applied to the person who is called the son of something. He's exhibiting the characteristics in that, um, in that noun. And so when you have the phrase son of God, it's emphasizing full deity. When you have the phrase son of man, it's indicating uh, true humanity. So he is uh, validated by God the Father, as the Son of God, as full deity, by the resurrection from the dead. God accepts, that's sort of God's seal of approval for what Christ did on the cross in paying for our sins. Now, we go forward, it says, through him, that is, through this one who was true humanity and undiminished deity in one person, through him, the one who is elevated as the God-man now to this position in heaven, it is through him and under his authority, he says, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, this raises a couple of different questions, especially in the second um, in the main clause there, we have received grace and apostleship in trying to understand exactly what that describes. Uh, as you read through various uh, uh, commentators and various theologians who comment on this and try to understand just the significance of this uh, particular phrase, there are some that, and, and the most common position is to take this in something of a hendiatus, which means it, that the nouns relate to each other. Uh, grace would be the main noun, and apostleship then would be uh, would be modifying it. So they translate something like the grace of apostleship. I don't think that's right. Both both nouns are used without an article here, and so we have to catch what the sense is. We have received is the is the verb one verb. It's the um, uh, aorist. Uh, passive of uh, Lombano. And so we look at this and say, who's the we? We have to identify the we. Is Paul talking about we, meaning himself and his audience? Have they received the grace of apostleship? However you understand that phrase. Have they received anything related to apostleship? No. So he's not using the we to refer to himself and his audience. He's using the we as Paul does in several places in an, like an editorial we, uh, magisterial we. It is, or the royal we. Paul is just speaking about himself, uh, in, in a plural form. So he's talking about the fact that he received grace and apostleship. 
But these two nouns should not be understood as being dependent on one another. They refer to two different aspects of what occurred when the when Saul of Tarsus was on the way to Damascus to arrest, imprison, and torture uh, the Christians that he would find there. When Jesus, as the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him on the road to Damascus, appeared to him in a bright light so that those who were with him uh, didn't see anything in the light, they just saw a bright light. So that tells us that there was something objective there. They couldn't see Jesus in the light, but they saw a light. So it's not just some sort of internal, subjective, religious experience that the Apostle Paul had. That is your uh, typical uh, interpretation from liberal theologians who start from the vantage point that there really isn't anything supernatural, that God really doesn't enter into human history and human events to do anything. And so religion, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, is just a matter of personal preference or tradition or family or something like that. There's no such thing as objective reality or objective truth in any religion. The best we can ever get, according to the liberal approach, is you have your opinion and I have my opinion, but opinions can all be evaluated on the basis of evidence. So some people have opinions that are true, and other people have opinions that are false. Uh, so the, those who have true opinions, those who are concerned about truth, take the time to investigate truth claims. And uh, But those who are opposed to truth seek to diminish those claims by whatever means that they can. And so since uh, the 19th century, the claim has been that Paul just had uh, an, he, he had a guilt complex because he'd been persecuting these Christians, and finally the guilt complex because of various murders, etc., that are executions that have taken place. Now he's overwhelmed with guilt, and so he has this uh, hallucination on the way to uh, to Damascus, but it's purely an internal thing. But that doesn't fit the the evidence of the text. To to say that that's true means you have to just make things up out of whole cloth. You have to conjure up uh, circumstances that for which there is no evidence anywhere in any literature, anywhere in in history. So the, apostle, the only evidence that we have is what we have in Acts and other uh, early church documents, which all reiterate the same thing, that Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is on the way to Damascus. His companions hear a sound. They can't make out the specifics of what is said, but they hear a sound, a voice, speaking from within the light. They see the light, which says that it's an objective Experience something happened, something objective took place that was uh, witnessed by those who were on the road with him, who certainly weren't sympathetic to anything uh, that was going on. And so Paul is confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an act of grace. Grace means that those who are undeserving receive something of blessing, something of benefit, even though... Uh, they don't deserve it. Truth be told, they probably deserve just the opposite. And so what happens is that Paul received grace there in that 
the Lord Jesus Christ personally appeared to him, and it is in that revelation of himself as the risen Messiah that the Apostle Paul responds by trusting in him as as his Savior and accepting the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah's promised in the Old Testament. So that's the grace part. But in that action that occurred, the Lord Jesus Christ is identifying Paul, Paul's mission, that he is going to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so his mission, as opposed to the mission of the other 11, is going to be oriented to the Gentiles. It's not that the other 11 never spoke to Gentiles. Peter certainly did when he went to the house of Cornelius, but it's Paul to whom the mission of taking the gospel to the Gentiles uh, is given as as the primary as his primary mission. So he receives two things: he receives grace in terms of salvation, and salvation, as Paul states in Ephesians two eight nine, is always by grace. It's not by works, but by grace. It's the free gift of God, as he writes in Titus. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Why can't it be from works of righteousness as we've done? Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So the Old Testament says human works of righteousness are inconsequential. Actually, they're a detriment to salvation because you can't get there on the basis of, of human effort or human righteousness. You can only get there on the basis of somebody else's righteousness which is the righteousness that's given through Christ. So it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So Paul receives grace in terms of salvation and apostleship in terms of a spiritual gift and a mission. Remember when we covered the doctrine of apostleship in Acts, that there are three different ways in which someone is called an apostle in the New Testament. Before the day of Pentecost, the uh, the 12, including Judas Iscariot, were all identified as apostles. Jesus called them. He commissioned them to take the message of the kingdom to only the house of Israel. They were not to take any extra clothes with them, any food, any money, any weapons. Uh, they were just supposed to go on their own and take this message to the house of Israel and the house, house of Judah. It's not a spiritual gift. Then after Pentecost, apostleship is a spiritual gift. The apostles are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the mission is to take the gospel to the whole world. And then there's a third class that is those, those who are called apostles who are commissioned by a local church and are sent by a local church as missionaries. Now, we don't like to use that the word that way anymore because it gets confusing. And there are some churches, of course, where you have apostles and you have bishops and everything. But what it just creates a lot of confusion because a capital A apostle is someone who was commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ and who was a witness of his resurrection, which the apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus. So, uh, through him, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we, meaning I, have received grace at salvation and apostleship. That apostleship is a mission for a particular 
task. Now that next, that task is laid out in the next phrase, for obedience to, to faith. And in the Greek, this is a phrase that begins with the preposition eis, E-I-S, and eis always indicates a goal or direction in a, um, a phrase of this nature with its ace plus the accusative of hupakoe for obedience. Now, there are a lot of people who think that whenever somebody comes along and starts emphasizing obedience to the Bible, that somehow that's legalism. But it's not. That's just a distortion of the concept of legalism. Legalism has to do with a, an external obedience as the basis for the blessing of God that if I do X, Y, and Z, then that becomes the cause of God blessing me. Whereas what the Scripture teaches is that God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's in every believer. And it is on the basis of that perfect righteousness that God blesses us, not on the basis of obedience. But on the basis of obedience, what happens is that we grow spiritually and as a result of that spiritual growth, then God, uh, uh, then God uh, provides for us many of the things that he has uh, said are accrued to the believer as he grows in maturity and has the uh, capacity to enjoy those things. But it's not because of, uh, uh, because of their uh, obedience as the basis for blessing. Now, the phrase here, for the obedience of faith is understood different ways because you have a, uh, a main noun, obedience, but that noun is qualified by a, another noun that in this case is in the uh, 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 genitive case. Now, uh, genitive case indicates usually possessions, and it's usually translated something like with the English preposition of, so uh, for obedience of the faith. But that phrase of the faith has many different shades of meaning. So there are some who say that it is um, for obedience from faith, a genitive of source, that the obedience comes from the source of their faith, and that's possible. Others say it's obedience uh, belonging to faith uh, in terms of a genitive of possession. Others say that it's uh, obedience to or in the sense of with reference to faith. And so we want to see if we can narrow down our understanding of what Paul is talking about there when he talks about the obedience of the faith. And the best way to understand that is to go to another place, one other place, where Paul uses this phrase. And wouldn't you know it, it's in Romans. It's at the end of Romans. So here we have bookends. Romans 1 5 and Romans 16:26. For those of you who have ever been in the military, this is known as bracketing, like artillery. You shoot your first shell and it shoots over the target. You shoot your next shell and it's too close and falls short of the target. Now you've defined your target range and then the next time you hit your target. Well, in literature, often you have something similar where in your introduction and in your cl- conclusion, you, you bracket your main ideas by repeating or focusing on a similar phrase. And so that's what Paul has done here is by repeating the, fra- the identical phrase 
in, uh, in his conclusion, he helps us to understand what he means by that. And in uh, Romans 16:26 we read, "But now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations out. Where do we get that phrase of prophetic scripture? What does that remind you of? That ought to remind you of Romans 1, 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, he picks up that, those same ideas. He's got prophetic scripture in 1, 2, and he's got prophetic scripture in 16, 26. So he says, but now made manifest and by prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. And uh, that has a, the Greek there is ethnos, which has, can refer to nations or Gentiles, uh, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. And we'll see where that commandment comes from in just a minute. The commandment of the everlasting God for the purpose of obedience to the faith. That's the end result, obedience to the faith. Now, when we look at this phrase, something else strikes you that uh, doesn't show up in the English, and that is that in terms of the Greek, you can see there's three words there. The first word's the preposition ace. The second word is a noun. The third word's a noun. But in English, you have the insertion of an article, the. Paul only uses the article in the Greek when he's identifying faith in terms of the body of doctrine that is foundational to Christianity, Christian truth, Christian doctrine, the Christian faith. So the inclusion of the article in English is misleading because he's not talking about the faith that has been given once for all to the saints. He is talking about uh, the the act of belief or believing in what God has revealed. And this is evidenced by the lack of the article in both 1.5 and in 16.26 for obedience of faith. That's how it should be translated. It it's, has a measure of ambiguity in the English, but as Dr. Thomas says, that's the role of a good translator is to have the same measure of ambiguity in the translation that you have in the original. And then it's the role of the pastor then to exegete the text and in his exposition of the text to make these things uh, clear. So what Paul is talking about here is related to uh, faith in terms of belief in the message. And there's more than one message. There's more than one commandment. The primary commandment is related to justification, or we usually refer to as salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, as Paul stated in Acts 16.31. Believe there is a command. It's an imperative. So the, the gospel is really a command from God to man to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the result is that you will be saved. So that's the first and most significant command. That is the uh, command of priority, that first of all, we have to make sure that we are uh, justified before God. The second aspect of faith has to do with ongoing trust in God as we grow and mature in the Christian life. Let's look at a 
significant passage for understanding what Paul's talking about here when he uh, expresses the fact that we have uh, a message, as he states in, in 1626, the commandment of the everlasting God, the commandment that comes via the Lord Jesus Christ to the 11 disciples in Matthew 28:19 is uh, translated, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now let's stop a second and just sort of talk about this verse. In the English, and you may have heard this, I don't know, and I know that at at one time I thought this was true, and like any good pastor, you grow and mature in your understanding of Scripture and your understanding of of, uh, Greek and Hebrew. In the English, it's translated as if the primary command is to go. And there have been a lot of sermons preached on going, going, going. Okay, going. Go, therefore... And the second command would be to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. That ing tells you that in English that's a participle. Uh, it modifies your main command of uh, make disciples. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. So there's your second command. So you'd under, circle or underline both teaching and baptizing and connect them back to make disciples. Now, that's true as far as it goes. The first word to go is a participle. It's not an imperative. And so you'll hear a lot of sermons also by people who say the main command is to make disciples, and that first participle should be understood as a temporal participle when you are going. Uh, as you go throughout the, your, your uh, details of life, go throughout the process of life and living, make disciples. However, the nuance in Greek is when you have a, an imperative, that is preceded by an adverbial participle, it can be an adverbial participle of command because it gets, it gets its new, it's like, a, like the main verb is a command, and that is like a magnet, and the participle preceding it is like a bunch of iron filings that get attracted to that magnet. And so the meaning of that initial participle there, even though it's not an imperative, uh, a strict imperative mood in the Greek, it picks up an imperatival sense because it, of its relationship to the main command. So it is correct to, I, to translate this as, a, as an imperative. It, there is an imperatival command to the disciples because they are what? To make disciples of all nations. Now, when you're sitting in Jerusalem... The only way you can make disciples of all nations is to get up and leave Jerusalem. You have to go. You can't just sit there in Jer- Jerusalem and think that it's just going to happen or if I just go about life as I've always gone about life, that somehow uh, everybody's going to find their their way to my house and I can uh, then go about the process of making them students of the Word. That is uh, doesn't fit the context. So it's better to understand this as, as, a, as it's been understood as the um, primary mandate for the Christian life, and especially for the disciples. This was their, their marching orders. They were to go to all the nations. They were to start that process, to go through all the nations 
and to make disciples. Now, that word is the Greek verb matetuo, which has the idea of making students of people. It's not necessarily in and of itself. It isn't necessarily a word that means make them a Christian. Disciple, some disciples are, Christ, are believers, some aren't. There are, uh, even amongst the, those who follow Jesus, the term disciple was not equivalent to someone who was a believer. Uh, so the word disciple was used in a couple of different senses. One, in just a generic sense of students or listeners are those who were studying what a teacher was teaching. Didn't mean they believed it, but they were studying it. And then there's another sense in which, as Jesus laid down uh, principles, if you want to be a genuine or a true disciple of mine, then you have to do all of these other things. Well, you don't have to do anything to be saved. So, again, that word disciple isn't equivalent to being saved, but it is indicated of those who want to go beyond simply making sure they're going to end up in heaven. They want to advance uh, in their relationship with God and be genuine students of what God has revealed to us and what God has to teach us. And so that is the command. You can, uh, by the command making disciples, Jesus is saying that their primary mission is to teach, to instruct. Uh, that's the primary purpose of the apostolic ministry. That was the primary purpose of the pastoral ministry. It is to teach. It is to instruct. It isn't the sole purpose. It isn't the only thing that pastors do. It wasn't the only thing that apostles did, but it's 90%. That is the focal point. That's the priority is to teach, to explain what God has said and to teach the word. So they make disciples by teaching, but it's all nations. They are to go out to all the nations. It's no longer a focal point on Israel, but to all the nations. Now, these next two, next two participles that are here help understand what's involved in making disciples. Two things were, are, are involved in making disciples. First has to do with the participle participial form of baptizo, and the second has to do with the participial form of didasco. Now, baptizo means to baptize, means to immerse. That's the dictionary meaning of the word. So that um, I'm pointing this out the other day, that one of the ways in which uh, Bible translators over the years, no matter what language they're translating into or what their background is, whether it's uh, rabbis translating the uh, Hebrew Old Testament or whether it's uh, theologians translating the New Testament into English or whatever language, one of the ways that you can avoid having to make a, dis a, a decision as to what um, the, the text is actually saying is that rather than translate it into the target language, you just transliterate it. So everybody's confused. And that's exactly what happened with this word baptism. Because in the early church, the mode of baptism was immersion. And then somewhere into the late second and third, and on into the third century, they started sprinkling infants. Because the question came up, what happens if a baby dies? If a baby dies and they've never trusted in Jesus, how can they be saved? And so somebody got the idea, well, if we baptize them, then 
and, and identify them with the faith of their parents, then that will guarantee that if they die in infancy, then they'll go to heaven. Well, you can't take a baby out and dip him under the uh, uh, raging waters of some river. So rather than doing that, they started uh, shifting the form from immersion to sprinkling. And then after Constantine legalized Christianity in the uh, early 4th century, and Christianity became the official religion of the state, and you started this horrible thing that identified the state with a particular religion, then what happened is that, that the entry into the church became identified with a person's citizenship. So you would be a poor citizen, even a traitor, if you weren't a Christian, if you weren't in the church. And the way to get in the church was to be baptized. So baptism became equivalent to becoming a citizen in the state. And those two ideas got really muddied up and confused all the way through the period of the Middle Ages and up into the period of the Protestant Reformation. Now, when the Protestant Reformation began uh, with Martin Luther, when Martin Luther challenged the works-oriented uh, theology of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, when he nailed the 95 debate points up on the door of the church at Wittenberg, he was focusing on one thing, which is justification by faith alone. And that became the major battleground. And he really didn't go much beyond that because he didn't have time. I mean, he's fighting a major battle of World War II proportions in the world of theology, and he just doesn't have time to go deal with all the other areas of theology. He's just focused on that one area. And there were a lot of ways where when, in Martin Luther's theology that when he took that one first big step out of Roman Catholicism, he still left one leg behind. His view of the Lord's table was what was called consubstantiation, which sounds an awful lot like transubstantiation, only it's different. But it's hard to really understand those fine points. He's not moving very far. And he, he never left this concept that of splitting the church from the state. Neither did John Calvin. Neither did Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, neither did Henri Bullinger. These were the great Swiss, the leaders in the Swiss Reformation. But Zwingli had some students, some disciples, some dis- dis- students, uh, Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, a few others, uh, Blaurock. Uh, and these guys, as they were carrying out the foundational principle of the, of the Protestant Reformation, which is the Scripture and the Scripture alone, that we're going to base our belief on the Scripture alone, as they began to study the Scripture and apply a literal interpretation to other areas of Scripture, they came to this word baptism. They looked it up in their Greek lexicon and said, that means to immerse. We're sprinkling. We need to immerse. And also, this seems to be a sign of, of something that is done at the beginning of a person's uh, Christian life, after they have trusted in Christ as Savior. It is a picture to teach something about the spiritual baptism when a believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So they raise their hands in Bible class all excited and tell Zwingli it's time. We need to be baptized. We, we gotta be, and this was just major heresy. And uh, they were tried and convicted and drowned, which seems somewhat ironic since they wanted to be immersed. 
And um, this was typical. So you had the rise from that uh, birthing point. You had the rise of a group called Anabaptists. And Anabaptism means uh, to be baptized again because they'd all been baptized once as infants. Now they said, no, 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 that's not any good. We have to be baptized again. So they were called Anabaptists. And there's only two things that make a Baptist a Baptist. I've asked a lot of Baptists this question. I've asked Baptist seminary professors and Baptist preachers this question. The only person I've ever asked this question to who got it right was a Jewish urologist here in Houston. And I said, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? He said two things, baptism by immersion and separation of church and state. has nothing to do with inerrancy, substitutionary atonement, believing in Jesus. None of those things were what the issues were in the 17th century. The issues were two things, believer's baptism and separation of church and state. So baptism, they understood it right. It means immersion. And it was something that was done after conversion. Now, the other thing about baptism is that though the literal meaning of the word is to uh, immerse, dictionaries say dip, plunge, immerse, it has a... Its meaning or its significance is something else. It was a way of identifying something with something else. So that was always the focal point of baptism is identification. So that when John the Baptist came along and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the sign was that he would take them down and baptize them in the Jordan River, these people were being identified with John the Baptist and his, and his message. So that baptism as a believer has to do with identification. Paul makes this clear, the significance of it in Romans 6, that the spiritual truth is that when a person believes in Jesus, that at that instant they are legally identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection so that the tyranny of the sin nature is broken and they are put in a new position uh, in Christ. So baptism is always something that is associated with, whether you're talking about spiritual baptism, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, or you're talking about water baptism, it's always associated with a person's conversion, with their initial faith in Christ and their justification. So the phrase baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit relates to justification, or what we refer to as phase one, salvation, being saved from the penalty of sin. Then the second participle, teaching, they are made disciples first by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, identifying them with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and second, teaching them to do what? to observe all things that I have commanded them, Jesus said. And so that 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 relates to the ongoing growth of the believer and how he learns uh, what God has for him, how he learns the word, and he is to what? He is to do or observe all that Jesus commanded us. So once again, we get back to that concept of obedience, obedience to a commandment. So in Romans... 16.26, Paul concludes Romans by saying, The prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience 
of the faith. So the obedience of the faith means that obedience consists of faith, and the obedience to believe consists of faith, and obedience to grow is also produced by faith. Faith means has to do with obedience. And um, this is seen again in another passage in Romans, in Romans 10, 16, and 17. And dealing with Old Testament passages and the failure of Israel to accept Jesus as Messiah, uh, Paul quotes from an Old Testament passage and connects what was happening at that time with what had happened in five and in the time period from the 700s to up to 586 BC. Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry was in the um, early part of that. And he, he quotes from Isaiah who said in Isaiah 53.1, Lord, who has believed our report? No one. Report is something oral. So Paul concludes, so that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it's that first sentence in verse 16 I want to focus on that where Paul says they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So in the structure of that verse, Believing the report is equivalent to obeying the gospel. The report is the message of the gospel. So faith is obedience, but it's not a meritorious obedience, which is the idea of somehow working or doing something righteous that God then blesses us for. It is recognizing that the merit is all in Christ, not in me. God has commanded me to believe in him, but the value comes from the object of belief, not the act of belief. So we recognize then that when Paul says that through him we have received grace and apostleship, that apostleship, the focus of apostleship, is to carry out the great commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That's the mission of the apostles. And that is to teach the gospel, the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16.31, and then the mandates related to the spiritual life that come after salvation. And they, the uh, apostles were commanded to take, take that message to all the nations. They were to go and make disciples of all the nations. So this, again, is exactly what Paul said in Romans 1.5, we have received grace and apostleship for the purpose of, this is the message, obedience of the faith among all nations, and then for his name, indicating the uh, character and reputation of his person. If you do something in the name of someone, it's in reference to their authority, in reference to their character, in reference to their person. It's not just this... um, a nominalistic sort of idea that a name is just a label, but the name in Scripture has something to do with the essence or character of a person, so it is with reference to the identity, the character, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to verse 6, well, one other, let me, I have one other passage in here to go to for obedience. Galatians 2.20 where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live. See, I'm no longer a slave to myself. That's why he said in verse 1 that he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this human body, I live, how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life of the person after salvation, after he becomes a believer, is a life that is based upon faith. And so it is faith in the Word of God and faith in the principles and mandates of the Word of God. Now then he wraps this up by finally getting to the um, recipients of the letter, and he says in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You also are the called uh, according to, uh, are the called of Jesus Christ. Now this is another one of those passages and phrases that gets, we'll introduce it here, we'll get to it some later on, but the word called is one of those words that often crops up in the so-called Calvinist uh, Arminian debate. The word calling has to do with and has a basic meaning of an invitation. I think I have just enough time to hit this, so hold your place here, and we'll just turn back to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is explaining the parable of the wedding feast. Now, I'm not teaching that, just giving an example of the... Um, of the phrase. The phrase is used in Matthew 22:14 for many are called but few are chosen. In the process of the parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So you see the connection between calling and inviting. That's the that's what calling refers to. It's everybody who's invited uh, to the wedding. And they're not willing to come. And uh, so he says, verse 4, again, he sent out to the other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, I prepared my dinner, etc., 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 come to the wedding. That's the call. Okay, so verse 14 says, many are called. That's the invitation. Few are chosen. Chosen has to do with those who responded to the invitation. Uh, these are the, one, the ones who are then referred to as the called. We might say in English that, uh, that 100 people were invited, 20 people showed up. They're the invitees, and we refer to them as the invitees or the called. Now, that doesn't mean nobody else got the calling. It just means they're the only ones who responded to the calling. So they're called the called or the invited ones. That's how uh, Paul is applying this term to these believers in Rome. You are among whom, that is all uh, those who have responded, you are also the called or the invited, those who have responded to the invitation of Jesus Christ. And then he points, gets to the salutation itself, or the uh, addressees themselves in verse 7, to all who are in Rome... Beloved of God, called, and then the to be there is just added. That's not in the original, called saints. Now, the word for saint in the, in the Greek is the word hagios, hagioi in the plural, comes from the, and it's related to the Hebrew word, uh, kadshim, 
or Kadash. Uh, in, in prayer, Hebrew refers to uh, Kiddush. All of those words are related to one another, and it means something that is set apart. Uh, a saint is a set-apart one, someone who has been set apart for the service of God. A saint is not a special class of Christian. You don't have those who are really good, those who really advance, those who did a special thing uh, as saints and everybody else are just the, the great masses. Um, they are. We're all called saints because we're set apart to Christ by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer is a saint. Every believer is set apart to God. And then we have the uh, his t- Paul's typical salutation where he uses the phrase grace and peace. Grace is the Hebrew, I mean the Greek word uh, karain, uh, which is not the word that was normally used. Or, or, excuse me, charis is the word that is um, the word that Paul uses here the typical word in a Greek greeting was karain, and he shifts it to grace because he's emphasizing grace comes from God, and he joins that with the uh, Greek word arene, which comes from the Hebrew word shalom, uh, there and relates to the Hebrew greeting. And so he combines the two in his greeting, emphasizing that grace comes only from the source of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and peace comes only from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he combines those two together, and that becomes his unique uh, way of addressing his letters. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at his priorities in terms of prayer, starting in verse, uh, verse 8 down through uh, 15. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to be reminded of the priority mission for the apostles, priority mission for the church is to make disciples by baptism, by communicating the gospel, and by uh, teaching, and that this is our mission. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with uh, understanding this and how it relates in terms of our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.